My name is Brian. If you guys are new here, we are going to jump into the book of Hebrews chapter 11. So if you guys want to open up in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, put your finger there. And then uh, you can go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4, I should say. Put your finger there. And uh, we're going to be reading those two passages right when we launch off. And uh, before we jump in, what I want to do is I'm going to pray and start all this off by just kind of asking God to do the work that God wants to do in our lives, and then we're going to read these passages, and we're going to get to work on what's going on here. So with that being said, uh, let's jump in. I'm going to pray, and then we'll read it. Uh, Father, right now, we just ask you that you would just open our hearts, allow us to be able to see the beautiful things that are there in your word. Uh, God, your word tells us faith comes by hearing, hearing by your word. So we ask you right now, God, that you, as we read your word, that it would generate faith in our hearts, that we would have confidence, better trust, greater confidence in who you are, in your character, uh, because of your words, because of your works, that we would trust you. Uh, So we devote this time in your hands. We pray, God, that uh, everything that we learn would not just be merely cerebral, but, God, that it would be transformative, that it would be a challenge to us, a challenge to the way that we live, a challenge to the way that we think. So we ask you, God, we just invite you to come to bring your challenge, to shine your light of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts and upon our lives, revealing darkness, revealing uh, wickedness in our lives and crooked ways in which we see you and perceive you. And God, straighten our thinking and our mindset out properly in accordance with your word. That's what we ask you. And help me, Father, to convey these truths the way that you want to in a way that just reflects and glorifies you. And anything, God, that I would say that just uh, puts emphasis upon things that don't, aren't a part of your mind or are not intended by your spirit to emphasize. God, anything that I say that detracts away from your glory, pray that you just immediately right now forgive me even before I speak it, Lord. I just want to be your mouthpiece. So help us right now to pay attention to your word and we ask uh, these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4, says this, once I find it. Verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man, and with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore, a, him, bore his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep, shepherd. And Cain was a worker of the ground, an Aggie. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and he fell, and his face fell. And the Lord then said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in a field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. This is God's word. 
What I want to do right now is I basically want to try to set the stage for what we started looking at last week. We kind of moved into a new series over the summer, uh, over the next, I don't know, 12 weeks or so. We're going to be taking a look at different snapshots, uh, different vignettes, different pictures of various people that have had faith in God, who have trusted God, who have been commended by God. Verse 2 tells us that by faith, these people were commended by God. Um, the translation there in the English might be a little bit difficult to try to understand because some of your translations by, uh, in verse 2 might say by faith. Some of these have testified of God or have been commended by God. And some of these words don't translate as strong as they should in the English. The actual Greek word there for commend in verse 2 is the English word, or the Greek word I should say, marturion. Get the English word martyr from. So some of your translations might say that they are witnesses of God. Some might say commend. When we think of the word commend, we might think of somebody getting a pat on the back. Right? We might think of somebody you know, just getting a certificate saying, great job. Uh, but the idea of commendation is huge. It's everything. It's really this idea that God looks at these people and says, I love these guys. These are my people. I like what they do. I, I commend them. I endorse them. I look at their life and the sum total of who they are, of their existence, of what they do. I count it up as commendation. I can write my stamp of endorsement or of approval upon their lives. I think Jesus would have put it this way. So there's going to come a day when you'll stand before the Father and the Father will say, well done, my good and faithful son, good and faithful daughter, enter into my rest. It's this beautiful reality of God commending these people. And Hebrews chapter 11 is really the story of these people that have basically earned, if you would, the commendation of God. And the word earn is really not even a good word either because it, it signifies this idea. They worked hard because they worked hard. They got it. And that's really not the way it's meant to be conveyed or understood. We don't earn God's commendation. It comes, though. God does commend us. But the way that God commends us, verse 2 tells us very clearly, it's by faith. So this story that we're going to be taking a look at, this brief little vignette that we're going to be taking a look at here today, and the way that the writer of Hebrews writes, is he writes to Jewish Christians. These are people that obviously have some sort of broader understanding of each of the names of the people that he's going to mention. He'll talk about Gideon and Barak and Deborah and Rahab, and a bunch of other people. You know, some of you might know of them, like David and Moses and some of these other guys. But these people would have been familiar with them. And so I'm not going to assume that you guys are going to know everything about these people. So that's one of the reasons why we're taking 12 weeks to go through one chapter. Because each week we're going to be taking a look at another vignette. Each week we're going to be taking a look at another snapshot of another one of these people and sort of decompressing their life. Trying to understand a little bit of the context around who they are, around what they did, how they lived, and how, at the end of the day, they earned uh, this phrase in verse 2, the commendation of God. Let me say this before I jump in. All of us, this concept of being commended by somebody, in particular God, really runs into the very base nature of who you and I are all. In other words, all of us can relate with this. All of us identify with this. The very base level, meaning we all understand what it means to want to be commended, want to be endorsed, want to be recognized, want to be identified. You understand that? That's how we all work. In other words, if, if, if you're a son and you got a dad, 
who never said to you, I love you. You're a great kid. Let's go play ball. Or if you were a little girl and you came out wearing these little dresses, you came out and you're like spinning in front of your dad. Dad, look at me. Aren't I beautiful? And dad's like, yeah, sure, dear. You're like not even recognizing, not even identifying, not even noticing or paying any attention to the little kid. You'll devastate and crush. All of us, the very base of who we are, we want to be recognized. We want to be commended. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, is that these people were commended. They were identified by God. They were recognized by God. And the opinion of God is far greater than the opinion of anybody else on this planet. And so Abel did something that earned the commendation of the living God. And so much so to the point where God says, I want to round two, I want him in the book again, because I want people to see why Abel was commended by me. And so one of the things that we're going to identify, like Abel, along with some of the other people, but we're not going to be looking at them today, over the next few weeks, we'll be taking a look at each one of these people throughout the book of Hebrews, but in particularly Abel today, one of the things that's unique with Abel, and it's different from all the other people within the book, is Abel is identified by way of contrast. In other words, Abel's the only guy that sort of gets compared and contrasted with somebody else. So in in this particular case, it says that Abel offered a better sacrifice than his older brother, um, Cain. And so he tells us that it was through this whole circumstance that he earned the commendation of God. So because this is sort of a uh, a comparison and a contrast, the main things that I really want to look at today are two. The first of which is I want to look at some of the similarities between Cain and Abel. The second thing I want to take a look at are some of the differences. So that's about it. That's what we're going to be focusing on today. First of all, the similarities between Cain and Abel. And secondly, we'll be taking a look at the differences. Notice the very first similarity that we identify between Cain and Abel. Again, it says this. It says that they knew that, really, I mean, I would say the similarity is this, that they know both of them that you can't just go before God without a sacrifice. So both of them, that's what's similar to them. And one thing that you'll find throughout the Bible, the Bible is constantly giving us these pictures, um, these ideas, these storylines. If you would, sort of subplots. And these subplots are people that look very similar, that might be from the same family, but they're intrinsically different. There's something different about them. And maybe in one case, one's accepted, one's not. Give me an example. One of them that we're going to be looking at today, obviously, is Cain Abel. But you can also look at like Jacob and Esau. They're both twins, born the same day, born within minutes apart from each other. In fact, they were holding on to each other. One of them was holding on to another guy's foot. Came from the same gene pool, right? And they, they grew up in the same family line, yet one was commended by God, one wasn't. In the New Testament, Jesus tells the story of ten virgins, ten bridesmaids, if you would, kind of in a modern-day translation. Uh, five of them, and I would imagine all of them had the same dresses on. All of them looked the same, same type of makeup. They're all in the same bridal party. Uh, but five of them get accepted. They go in. Five of them are rejected. They don't come in. Jesus also gives another story. It's a little parable. It talks about two houses. One house is built upon a foundation of sand. The other house is built upon a foundation of rock. They, my assumption would be they look identical. Same paint color, same materials in which they were built with, same decoration on, on the interior. Everything looked exactly the same. Same set of design, architectural plans. Everything was the exact same. So to the you know, casual onlooker, you would just assume it's all the same, right? But vastly different. Vastly different uh, outcome. And that's what we're going to see right here is even though both of these guys have a lot of similarities, they're vastly different. 
So one of the similarities that we notice is that they both recognized they cannot come to God as they were. They both needed an offering. Now this is unique to me because they both recognize that just walking into the presence of God by themselves, on their own, without something in their hands, they were insufficient. They just couldn't do it. They could not walk before God and somehow accept to be accepted, right? There's that word commendation, that they would not be commended, they would not be endorsed, they would not receive the recommendation from God. They would be rejected if they just came in by themselves. Now, obviously, you know, kind of we live in a pompous age and sometimes people look at themselves and they're like, I can go in, I got the goods. But the reality is you're just deceiving yourself. Nobody, if you're just truly honest with yourself, we all realize in and of and who we are, we realize that we don't have the goods. We don't have what it takes to be commended or to be endorsed or to receive the favor of God. We just don't at all. And so both of them similarly bring a sacrifice. Both of them recognize we need to be able to go in not empty-handed. And I think the reason why is this, again, this sort of taps into sort of the hidden nature of who we are as human beings. We all recognize that in and of and who we are, something is deficient. Something's not there. That's quite right. We see this very evidently a lot of times within politicians and within the series of times when we do like elections. It seems like we're always having an election for something. But you know, you realize this. When somebody's running for office, one of the things that they do is they bring their offering because they want the public opinion. They want the public commendation. It's part of getting elected. You need to earn somehow the commendation, the favor, the endorsement of the public. So what you do is you bring your offering. You bring the best of the best that you have to offer. And the reason why we do that, or politicians would do that, is because they realize just coming as you are, just letting it all hang out on a table, just showing everybody who you actually are, will actually not, it won't work in your favor. It will actually bring disharmony. It will bring you not getting your job. So what do you do? You kind of bring the best that you have. You, you, you try to hide everything that you don't want to be shown. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, if, if, if the politicians know that if you demonstrated who you really are as a husband, how you really treat your staff, how you really have dealt with, you know, your past secretary, maybe some sort of, you know, bad, indiscreet type of relations that were going on there, or the way that you really treat your kids, or the way that you really handle your finances, if they knew the truth about you, they wouldn't commend you. Does that all make sense? So the reality is we can look at this and be like, you know, it, it, isn't that just simply politicians? See, one of the interesting things about uh, bringing offerings is, one, offerings create sort of this image of strength. They demonstrate, wow, this person's strong here. But they also kind of work in another way where they cover failures. That's what these offerings do. They bring about or create this image of strength. That person's strong because look at what they have shown. Look at what they've demonstrated. Look at what they've given forth. But it also covers failures. So in other words, if you really want to kind of reduce it down to this, the point of bringing an offering is to regulate and to control information that's going out about me. In other words, I don't want people to just think anything about me. In other words, you know, we can look at this and just say, well, isn't this just politicians that act like this? The answer is no. We all act like this. We're all politicians. We all work like this. I mean, this is the way that we operate in social circles, isn't it? When you go to apply for a job, you stand before the boss-to-be, 
right? You're putting your best foot forward. You want them to see your accomplishments. You want to see how wonderful you are. I mean, you're definitely not going to say, you know what? Here's what I do most of the time. Probably about 30% of the times on the job, my last job, I just updated my Facebook profile. That's all I did. 30% of the time. And not only that, but I cut out early. I took long lunches. I, that's what I did all the time. I always was late. Always. Can I get the job? No, because you're not, you're not going to be commended. You will be fired even before you get hired, right? It just won't work. So we put our best foot forward. That's how we operate in social systems. People maybe that we want to know, that we want to become friends with. We always put our best foot forward. It's what happens in dating situations. When you're dating, you're putting your best foot forward. You want them to see the best about you. You want to control the information. You want to control what type of information they know about you. Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, the French philosopher, died in the 80s. Uh, basically said this. He was, a, he was an atheist. He was by no means, you know, a lot of stuff is horrible. But he basically said this. He had this little section here. He talks about the stare. And there's one of the books that he had written. He talks about this idea of somebody staring at you. There's something that's very unnerving about somebody just staring at you. Okay? Now imagine this. Here you are hanging out. He kind of paints this picture of, you know, being out in the open area. And someone just standing there. And they're staring at you. And now the reality is, if you... If if you look at them and they're smiling while they're staring at you, you're all, that's cool. Because in your mind you're thinking, they're thinking good thoughts. Because they got a smile on their face. So you're like, this could be good. This could work in my favor. But if they're looking at you and they're either A, blank-faced, or they got a scowl, you're panicked. You're petrified. Because you have no idea the type of information they're observing about you. It's unnerving. It's dehumanizing. It's horrifying. Right? It's one of the reasons why Sartre was an atheist, because he had this perspective of God as being like this cosmic voyeur, that God just stares down at us. And this idea of someone just staring at you puts, them, puts you in their control, where you act differently when someone stares at you, right? So he's saying, when God stares at you and stares at you, and just you get sort of this feeling, I gotta act differently. It's this idea of God is sort of this cosmic voyeur and he dehumanizes everybody, but that's where he got it wrong. In reality, that's what the psalmist says, that in your eyes I find life. The real reality is that in God's sight, it's in God's commendation that we find life. That's where we got it wrong. But the point of the matter is, this idea of bringing an offering is what we try so desperately to do to earn the commendation of other people. We fight so hard, we live like this because we recognize that something is deficient inside of us. One of the reasons why is that I think Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, if you want to write it down, you can. I'm just going to read it to you. It says this. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in his eyes to him before whom we must give an account. So in other words, he's basically saying that God sees everything about us. We can't hide anything. That's very unnerving for us when we recognize that. So either A, we confess it and just come to God recognizing, yes, I'm a mess. Yes, I'm just, I'm messed up. I need help. Or we try to hide it. Let me read you another passage out of Genesis chapter 2. It says this, uh, verse 25. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. This is a really insightful verse as to what had happened to Adam and Eve or what had taken place when Adam and Eve prior to them sinning. It says they just hung out in the garden. They were with God. They're all nude, naked, and totally unashamed. Did not even recognize it. The moment they sinned, the very first thing they did is they went to go hide themselves. 
The very first thing they did is they went, they realized they, we had a duck and hide behind a bush, realizing you can't stay behind a bush forever, so you gotta make a bush portable. So what they did is they took fig leaves. They made portable bushes so they can live and walk around and carry on with life and at the same time concealing what they did not want anybody else to know about them. And it's the reality, and because we can look at this and just be like, well, that's primitive. They're primitive. We don't do this today. We're, we're wrong. We do this all the time. Because we can live in this modern world where we're like, you know, I don't care about the opinion of other people. It's where you're wrong. You do care about the opinion of other people. We all care about the opinion of other people. This is one of the reasons why some people work so desperately hard at their job. They devote themselves to it so much so it becomes sort of this idol where they devote themselves over and over and over again daily, working hard, trying to climb that ladder, trying to earn a name for themselves because it's in that job they feel a security sense, a security, and the more they succeed at that, the better of opinion that gets put out about their lives, the more they hope to gain and earn the commendation of others. It's one of the reasons why some people try to avoid other people at all costs. They don't want to be in community groups. They don't want to be in prayer meetings with other people. They don't want to be connected to a church. They don't want to be known because what they're afraid of is just that, being known, being found out. It's one of the reasons why, for example, some people want so desperately to always have a date or a boyfriend or a girlfriend because somehow, someway, in that sense of having that relationship on a regular basis, it's therein you find your commendation. You find love. You find your acceptance. And this is what was going on. This was the tug of war that was happening. This is what was taking place. This is one of the reasons why if you lose your job, and your job is the sole meaning of your source of commendation, you lose your job, you lose everything. You just want to die. You want to feel like life, you feel like life is actually over. Some, you know, they lose a boyfriend or girlfriend. They feel like life is absolutely ended because the sense of commendation, the sense of respect, the sense of endorsement, of value, of who you are is somehow intricately, intricately tied up, bound up to this idea, this notion of everything that I am is found in this offering. This offering. It's who I am. And what we're told is that Cain and Abel came both recognizing we need an offering to bring to God, to enter in. So this is the similarities that we notice between the two of these guys. They come in bringing these offerings, and really at the end of the day, so much of our offerings... So much of our offerings are really nothing more than just fig leaves. It's one of the reasons why. I mean, we do this all the time. We dress up. We wear certain clothes because either they conceal certain things or they accentuate certain body parts that we want to be seen. It's why one of the reasons if you gain a pound, you feel like dying. I mean, honestly, you look at this. I mean, there's a sense of wanting to be healthy, which is fine. But the reality is for some, it's obsessive. It's life. It's commendation. Everything of who you are, what you want to project to be known as, is totally bound up in what you look like. So we wear clothes to conceal certain things, to hide the pounds, to hide the LBs, or to demonstrate other things that we feel very passionate about that we want others to see. It's all a fig leaf. It's all fig leaves. And here's what we go on to see the next thing, is what are some of their differences in this particular setting, 
I keep saying differences and similarities. I'm just giving you guys one. There's probably a lot more that you guys can spend some time on, but I'm not going to preach for two hours. So the next one is this. The difference that we see here is that between Cain and Abel, is that really what we end up seeing is that Abel's sacrifice was accepted. I mean, this is the most obvious blatant one. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Hebrew word is sha'ah. God accepted it. God took it. God responded to it. God looked at it and says, this is good. And then Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. God looked at it, and he had no regard towards it. God had no regard for it. And we can stumble over this and get frustrated about this, but this is the reality. This is how it is. And at the end of the day, we can argue with God over this. We can look at God and say that God is just not fair. But what I want to ask you to think about, who are you going to go to? Who are you going to take God? What court are you going to take God to? I mean, we can argue with God all we want. We can say this isn't fair. We don't like it. We want another way. We want more options. But at the end of the day, what court will you take God to? What judge is higher than God? Who will we turn to? Who will we plead our case to? At the end of the day, God alone is the creator, and God alone is the one who sets these standards and says, this is how it all works. This is how it takes place. This is how the human heart functions. These are the vices of the human heart. These are the things that destroy the human heart. And these are the things that give life to the human heart. And here's his whole point. So the thing that we notice in terms of the difference between these two guys is Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. So the question that we got to ask is this. Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted? What was it about Abel's sacrifice that God looked at and says, this is good, I'll take it? See, because sometimes we might have this sort of picture in our mind that both of them come bringing to God these sacrifices and just so happens to be, I mean, I've read some strange literature on this I mean, to the point where it's just like, you know, God... Uh, actually favors shepherds than uh, farmers. Which I don't know if that's the case. I mean, you know, I mean, but the reality is that he's, the, the point is that God favored Abel's sacrifice. And the question is how and why? Well, again, we need to ask the question, how did Abel bring the sacrifice? And that's where the response comes back in Hebrews chapter 11. Again, it says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. In other words, by faith, so here's the thing. Abel was operating within this realm of confidence and trust in God. So let me give you a very, very fast definition of what faith is. Faith is simply this. It is the positive response to what God says and is done. It's simply that. It's, it's simply that. It's simply hearing what God has said, seeing what God has done, and just simply responding properly in obedience to that. Disbelief, or lack of faith, if you would, disbelief, the opposite of it, the invert of it, is hearing what God says and saying, I'll do the opposite. I'll do other. Or, you know, being stubborn. I, opposite. I won't do what God says. That's disbelief. It's acting in disbelief. Adam and Eve, their great sin boiled down to simply disbelief. When the serpent came to Eve and she's like, did God really say this? I mean, are you absolutely certain God meant what he said? Or is it possible? I mean, it kind of presents this sort of opposite side. He's like, is it possible that God, knowing everything, right, he's a pretty smart guy, God knowing everything actually knows that if you partake of the fruit, you'll be like him. In other words, God's withholding something really good from you, and that's where the seed was sown. And she thought, maybe that's right. And disbelief entered in, rather than confidence and trust in God. And she took the fruit. That's where all sin and all of us come from. We disbelieve God. 
We begin to believe the same false concepts about God. It's one of the reasons why a lot of people just keep going on in these endless cycles of patterns of keeping, to, keeping on giving false offerings because in their mind they've consistently believed the lie, this idea that working hard, working out, building your body, having boyfriends, having girlfriends, getting a job that pays a certain amount of money, driving a certain type of a car, wearing a certain type of clothing, that is what will get you the commendation. That is what will get you recognized. That is what will bring you into a place where you are endorsed and identified. It's part of that lie that just keeps moving itself on and forward. And that's what ends up happening here. So what we see basically taking place, it says, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. Uh, the actual Greek word that's used here is pleon. Um, it, could, doesn't, it means more in a sense of just more acceptable. Not more in the sense of bigger, better, greater, you know, but more in the sense of it's just what God accepts. It's what God looked at and says, this is good. You're doing a good job. This is what you, you're, you're paying attention, boy. This is what I want you to do. This is exactly what I wanted you to do. Good job. Two thumbs up. This is the father basically coming to Abel. And, you know, let me, let me say one more thing. What I love about the whole scene in Genesis chapter 4 is even though Cain offered a lesser sacrifice, God actually comes and was like, Boy, you don't got anything to be angry about. Just bring the right sacrifice and everything's fine. And he basically offers him this warning. It's because he sees this path that he's on. He's like, you got to watch your heart, man. I love you. But you got to watch your heart. Because it, I, I'm, I'm telling you, if you want to walk in obedience, it's about recognizing the things that I set out in standards. And you follow them. And you will find the path of life. So God actually gives Cain a chance. Gives him a shot to repent, to return, to restore but he doesn't. It's where instead he allows bitterness and anger to perpetuate in his heart and he ends up killing his brother. But back on track, here's the point that I want to make is this. What ends up happening is he offers a sacrifice by faith. Now here's the question I want to basically ask. What, what does this mean? What was he responding to? Well, Genesis, even though the text here in Hebrews doesn't give us a whole lot of information, I'm going to kind of go back and try to understand a little bit of the story. Because what I think it presupposes is that in Genesis chapter 3, we have sort of this narrative, this story, this revelation of God's uh, plan of redemption beginning to take place. It started, all right? It's, things are moving right along in God's plan. And what we're told, basically, two things. God uh, does this intervention with Adam and Eve, the first, uh, you know, human beings, who also happen to be both Adam, or I'm sorry, who happen to be uh, Cain and Abel's mom and dad, and so here's probably what they would have known. The first thing they, they would have recognized or identified that God was basically saying, because again, revelation, or I'm saying uh, faith, presupposes revelation. Because we operate, we believe what God says. So when we're talking about faith, it presupposes that God revealed something. Does that make sense? And then we respond to that revelation. You guys following with that? So if there's no revelation, there's really not any accountability to do something. But in this case... That's not, that's not what we have. We actually have Abel operating according to revelation. So what was revealed to Abel by which came through in the sacrifice that he gave that signified or pointed to God's revelation? Does that make sense? Did I frame that question right? Yeah? Two thumbs up? I'm just making sure. I need your commendation right now. Anyways, um, here's my point. So here's the revelation that goes on. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 tells us after Adam and Eve sinned, 
God makes this promise. So the two things that basically come out, one is God says to Adam and Eve, stop trying to cover yourself. First thing, don't try to attempt to cover yourself. Adam and Eve were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. God says, don't do that. You can't do it. It doesn't work. Stop trying to sew together these fig leaves. It's not going to work for you. That's the first thing that God basically says. The second thing that God points out is he says, look to my provision. And it's in this little passage in Genesis chapter 3 that God gives us great revelation. And the story in Genesis chapter 3 actually ends with it saying that God then clothed Adam and Eve in the skins of an animal. But in between this whole thing where God says, don't try to clothe yourself, to God actually clothing himself, he tells a story. And the story is this, is that from the seed of the woman, in other words, uh, Eve will one day give birth to a son, and the son will actually bring about the proper pathway to bring mankind home, back into relationship, back into a restored place of fellowship with the living God. They will be brought home. They will be restored. They will be forgiven. By how? By God's provision. God will provide a seed from the woman who will crush the head of the dragon, the serpent, and will ultimately bring about restoration. But in the process, the seed of the woman will be crushed, will be broken. He will die. It will be at great price. The means by which God says that I will bring restoration back to fallen humanity is through the death of somebody innocent. They will die. They will be broken. They will shed their blood. And that's the means. The great cost will be something will die. And at the end of the chapter, God says, here's skins of the animal. So something died in order for Adam and Eve to be covered. So here, back to the story, Cain and Abel come bringing their offerings. Abel brings a sacrifice of the flock, of a sheep, maybe of a goat. We're not, we're not certain exactly what it is. But whatever the case is, he brings the sacrifice to God. And there in his hand, it's not just simply him bringing the sacrifice saying, I hope I'm going to be accepted. It's him bringing the sacrifice to God saying, God, I remember mom and dad. They told me about one that would one day come, that he would die, he would suffer, he would be bruised, he would be bloodied. But in replace, in exchange of his death, his blood will be covered, just like you did to mom and dad. So I come bringing this sacrifice, having great confidence in what you've already said. Does that make sense? Cain comes, he says, God, look what I did. I'm with bell peppers, corn, cabbage, oranges. Are you happy, God? I worked really hard on all of these things. Potatoes, I worked really hard for these things. Are you happy with me? God's like, Abel's sacrifice is what I want. That's how I accept you. The sacrifice of what Abel brought. Last thing I want to ask is this. Question is this. Is, which one of you are you? Cain or Abel? Because to be quite frank with you, all of us in this room are one or the other. We're Cain's or Abel's. All of us. I mean, it really boils down to this. Let me give you a couple examples of how to kind of distinguish between two. Um, Abel's are, as I already mentioned, one of the best ways to kind of identify an Abel is two things. One, Abel's are commended by God. We looked at that. God looks at them and says, by faith, good job, I accept them. They've received my commendation. Abel's are also killed by Cain's. Abel's are killed by Cain's. But first of all, Abel's are commended by God. Do you know that one of the interesting things about um, Cain's is Cain's work really hard, constantly work hard, 
they are constantly doing stuff to try to earn other people's respect and opinion and idea and good report about them, and they work really hard. And here's what ends up happening with Cain's, is when they're, not ex- when they're not recognized, when people don't identify them, when people don't give them praise or give them strokes, you know what happens? They get really, really ticked off. You know that? That's what happens with Cain's. They get super angry, indignant, to the point where they would be so quick to just kill somebody. That's what Cain's do. Because they want so desperately, their life is wrapped up in this commendation. They want so desperately to be recognized and identified by the works of their hand. And when the things that they do, the things that they value, the system in which they overlay, whatever it is they they look at in their life and say, this is where I place great value in. I want everybody else to also place great value in it. When other people don't place as much great value in it as they do, they're ready to kill. Abel's, they're at rest. They're not stressed out. They're not freaking out. They're not trying hard. In fact, Abel's, they're just simply looking to Christ and they realize if I die, I, I die. I got something better. I got God. Cain's, if they die, they lose everything that they've been holding on to. Everything that defines their life, everything that they identify themselves with, it's gone with them. It's gone with them. This is important to understand. There's a passage I want to read in Luke chapter 18. Wrap it up with this. It's this Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus says this in John, uh, Luke 18 verse 9. It says, and he also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So they're looking at everybody else. They're really angry, upset. It says, they went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortion. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes. do all these great things. Verse 13, he says, but the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but instead he beat his chest, and he says, God, be merciful to me. Jesus basically says, you know who went home justified? The guy who looked to God. That is the story in the New Testament format of Cain and Abel. You understand that? So the really point of the matter is this, is all of us here are Cain's or Abel's. Boils down to that. And if you're a Christian, it means you become an Abel, but don't find uh, health and security in that because you know what ends up happening? Our hearts are so deceptive, we slip back into Cainism all the time. We We do, we go back. And that's part of being a Christian. It's fighting back those tendencies and temptations of acting like, being like Cain, self-righteous, self-promoting, slipping back, trying to find commendation and recommendation and identity and all sorts of other things. Being a Christian is somebody that just recognizes that nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross, I cling. That's what a Christian is. Just recognizes that he comes empty-handed, but immediately when he stands before God, he identifies Jesus and he points to Christ and says, that's why I'm here, God. That's what brings me here. There's nothing else I can point to except the cross. I don't look at my works. I don't look at my good looks. I don't look at the things that I have, the car I drive, the type of job I have, my prestige, my honor, my kingdom, my reign, my television. I don't point to anything. Just point to the cross. This is why Christians love Jesus so much. He is our everything. He is our everything. One of, the, one of the most beautiful things about all this 
is that Christians can actually come to times like worship, like we're gonna do right now, and have full, complete confidence that their sacrifice will be accepted. Kings never can. Kings are always wondering, will I be accepted? Kings are always uncertain. They're always intimidated. They're always threatened. Will I be accepted today? Will I be commended? Will I be recognized? Abel's, they look to Jesus and they realize, that's my confidence. That's all that I have. One of the writer of Hebrews, I think it's chapter 10, says this. Because of Jesus, we can come boldly in this throne room of grace and find grace and mercy in time of need. I hope you know that. I hope if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that you would honestly examine your life, examine what you're trying to live for, examine what it is that you're putting your hands to and your heart to and your affections upon. And let me ask you this. Will that support and sustain the weightiness of your soul? Will it? Forever? Not just for a season, but for all eternity? Will it sustain you? That's the problem with idols, is they may work for a very short season of time, and then you gotta trade it up for something else. You understand that? You gotta keep doing that. That life leads to great despair. And it's in that place of disparity that Jesus' words find such comfort when he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you believe that? I hope you do. We're gonna worship. We're gonna respond. We're gonna sing. We're gonna give our tithes and our offerings to Christ. What we're gonna do right now is we're gonna just, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna respond to Jesus. We have communion in the back and these little three areas in the back right there. I'd encourage you to partake of the communion. Remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. This is why we sing, guys. This is why we worship. This is why Christians love Jesus. Abel's, people who follow Christ, we have no basis of being arrogant. We don't. We can't look at some pet doctor and say we're better than them because of this. We can't look at even another religion and say we're better them than them because of this. We, we can't. We have nothing of which to boast. Everything we have has been gifted to us outside of ourselves. All that we have is to point to Jesus and say that is my sole basis of salvation, of hope, of help, of identity. And it's in that that the Father would look at you and say, you found your accommodation. And it's in that one day, I promise you, Calvary, so you will hear the voice of God welcome you into glory. And he will say, well done, my good, faithful child. Enter into my rest. The joy of God will be shared with you for all eternity. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings. I encourage you here, if you got sin that you got to confess, confess it. One last thing Abel's do. Because everybody recognizes they're sinners. They're really honest with themselves. But you know what Abel's do? They confess their righteousness. They recognize that even in themselves, their best acts are worthless. Christians, we recognize we have nothing good to bring to God. All we have is a good God who bring himself, brought himself to us. That's who we look to. We're going to pray, sing, worship, give gladly, partake of communion. Remember Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us on the cross.
God, I just, I'm just convinced there's some people here right now that just need to really look at their lives and really ask, who are they living for? What voice of commendation are they desperately, passionately longing for that they've never gotten? Because of that expectation, they've been let down, they felt broken, they've been belittled, they felt worthless. And yet, God, I pray in the midst of that, that they would see Jesus rising like the glory and the beauty of the sun, shining brightly over their lives, speaking a word into their hearts. Great is God, and greatly to be praised, and greatly beloved are His children. Greatly beloved, greatly accepted, greatly endorsed, greatly received because of the great love of Christ that was revealed, portrayed, put on display because of the cross. So God, right now, we come bringing nothing, but we come pointing to Jesus. We come pointing to Jesus, the one who died and rose again for us.